I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Being in Tawine is a global passport to meeting people that you really are going to connect with, that you're going to like, that you're going to be drawn to, that just sort of, you know, if, if you know, you know, if you get it, you get it. And just some amazing, amazing characters and brilliant people. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Clara Rubin is a UK-based sommelier and wine consultant. She's also the wine buyer for Hawksmoor Restaurants. A talented educator and communicator, Clara is one of those people whose gravitational force is something to be reckoned with. Welcome, Clara. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> what an intro. That was no, no, no erroneous awards, but gravitational pull. Cool. Thanks. Tell me a little bit about when you were bitten by the wine bug and did it sting? Oh, um, okay. So I uh, went all the way through university without really thinking very much about wine. Wine was something that my dad talked to hospitality professionals in very nice restaurants he used to take us to. And I was quite well-traveled as a kid, so I was really lucky. So there was always a respect for hospitality when I was growing up. That's something that's kind of missing in Britain, I think. But um, I graduated straight into the 2008 crash, which meant that if you got a paying job, you won, right? Like you were winning. Um, and uh, I took a job with a popular UK-based wholesaler called Majestic, and they were offering a WCT Level 3. Um, and I thought, well, if I don't want to do this for the rest of my life, at least I'll sound good in restaurants like my dad used to. And um, and then, I, yeah, I got totally bitten by the wine bug. I think I was tra- training with my manager at the time, and we were smelling a Southern Hemisphere. I think it was... Um, Chilean actually Argentinian or something like that um pretty oaky Chardonnay I just remember smelling beeswax and being totally transported a bit like that bit in Ratatouille where like his eyes sort of go really like tiny like pins and he's like a little boy again um and I just remember rolling beeswax candles um with my sisters when we were kids and it was just like oh my god this is like a portal I've got to find out more about this and I just yeah and it didn't sting it was beautiful it was like a lovely very welcome jellyfish thing (laughs) nice gentle way into it I love that that when you are able to identify something really distinct it might be only one note but when and especially when it's probably you know in the realms of being correct for that varietal it is just such an achievement and it's so um like you said it's so distinct isn't it and you just kind of go oh my god I, I can't almost can't see past it now it's so powerful because it's emotional and it like, it really hits home. It's very, and I, I then started to read all I could kind of voraciously about the olfactory bulb and your neuron receptors in, in your olfactory bulb and, and why it's, why it's so powerful in psychology. I did anthropology at university. So it all started to like tie together and it just sort of, I was like, oh my God, international trade and like human beings and psychology. And I got really excited about it. And um, as, as the kids say nowadays, that it slaps man fucking slams I don't know if I'm allowed to swear sorry oh god am I allowed to swear (laughs) (laughs) not at all I totally go for it I'm glad that you mentioned that you studied anthropology and psychology because I'm thinking like wow you just went straight straight for the jugular and were like why do I smell this and how does it relate but I mean you studied psychology and you know the minds of people is completely fascinating but now do you find you know wine wankers fascinating because I actually find them to be some of the most least fascinating people 
I, I actually I actually studied anthropology, but I've been a keen student of psychology since, and I've, I've never had a, a, a formal degree. So I could have I could have just won that one over, couldn't I? I could have gone home with a psychology degree, but no. Um, I. I um I I do find them fascinating, and I'm really glad you you say that. There's a certain phrase we have for them in the UK, which is kind of unkind because it's quite classist as well. But I think wine wankery is it's it permeates all classes, and 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 what is it exactly? I think it's I think it's a little bit of knowledge being a dangerous thing, and I think the kinds of people that we're talking about tend to wander into any conversation and dominate it with very little knowledge and loud opinions. And it's when a few little choice phrases, it's those people that always want to know like, oh, so what do I say when I want to sound really good? And you're like, well, what you say is what's the right question to ask? That's the right thing to say. Um, but I find it, I find it really fascinating when people want to get the cheat sheet on wine and like demystify it. And I was one of those people. I was one of those people trying to demystify wine because I was like an evangelist. I was like, this really cool thing. I need to tell everyone about it. It's amazing. But it's wine isn't for everyone. And that's 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 good. I think we've we've grown up thinking that everyone should be able to do everything and the doors should be wide open. And and an open door is very different from running around outside trying to tell everyone the cheat notes. Mm, so very true. And I think, you know, the more I get to know somebody that knows a lot about one particular subject, the more they step back and don't say so much when a, the conversation around that topic comes up. It's more about, like you said, asking questions or sitting back and just kind of not being the authority on that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and listening, really, really listening and then asking more questions because there's nothing wrong with asking questions at all. In fact, it's actively encouraged. Um, and I think one of the things I didn't like about a certain echelon of hospitality or my experience with it at least 15 years ago and um, back in the day, I think we're miles away from it now and the pandemic has helped, is this kind of attitude of step back, this is my job. You, you know, it's uh, I'm, I'm the special force of nature here that is allowed to talk about this special drink. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it is after all a drink. <laughs> People forget. <laughs> so very true. Now you've got your jellyfish sting. You don't mind it so much. What did you, how did you go about kind of getting into that? And you say that, you know, hospitality is your background. Is that the first step you took towards kind of after that Wesset first couple of levels? Yeah, I kind of, I kind of jumped in with both feet as well. Um, I, I made good friends with a master sommelier, a, a He's published as well. His books are really great. Lots of introductory stuff called Vincent Gasnier. Um, and he introduced me to a friend of his who was head sommelier at Ramsey on Royal Hospital Road, um, Jean-Marie Pratt. And Jean-Marie wasn't working there at the time and then handed me over to someone else. So my first hospitality job was hostess at Ramsey on Royal Hospital Road. And it was, uh, you want to talk about stinging that, <laughs> that actually hurt. That was, that was a lot. <laughs> that was quite something, <laughs> quite an introduction. When you're you're a host of the of somewhere like that, what is the the greatest skill that you can have? What did you learn from from doing that role? Um, just to say we <laughs> at everything. If you're told to do something, you're like we, oui, yes sir, okay, sure, absolutely, no problem. Um, and uh, you commented on my quite curly hair, um, but that was not. That was not fly at that restaurant. That was, it was, I had to actually grease my hair down because it was all a bit fly away. And um, Jean-Claude, who was the maitre d', he's recently retired, I think maybe a year ago, two years ago. Um, 
he was very unimpressed with my crazy curly flyaway hair. Um, and so, yeah, I think the best thing I learned was to, was to start listening and, and not express, um, what you know, but more be a sponge and start to ask the right questions in the right way respectfully. Well, I'm glad it taught you that. I completely disagree with the slicking down of curly hair. I think that's such a sin, you know, especially in hospitality where I I do remember times of not allowed to wearing earrings, anything bigger than like a small coin, no nail polish, everything must be pared back. Um, And it is great that we've come such a long way now wearing jeans in some of the, you know, Michelin restaurants and (laughs) doing whatever you want. Yeah, it's 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 so funny because the fitting in part, um, it's someone someone said something to me recently. Again, this is kind of going along with psychology and almost kind of life coaching. But someone said something which really hit me, which is belonging is very different from fitting in. Belonging is like easy. You can just be yourself, and therefore you bring the best of you to a team or or to to a group. Whereas fitting in is is that slicking your hair down and taking off your nail polish and wearing a skirt suit you can't afford and you know stressing about your tights and ladders in them and God knows what else. It's very different now. It sure is, and I think we're we're all better because of it. But at the same time, like you said, you do learn a lot from you know, maybe not having such a loud voice, especially in in the early stages of a career when you do need to be kind of Mm. watching and learning. Tell me a little bit about your time at Berkman Wine Cellars. (laughs) It was seven years, actually. So there's there's many chapters to it. I left um, a pretty solid sommelier position to go there. Um, And the draw of it was the portfolio, the amazing wines that I would have got the chance to work with. I actually went on a trip because um, a colleague of mine wasn't able to go on a trip with Berkman and so sent me instead. Um, And I boarded that plane going, I'm going to come off of this trip with a job offer. It's going to happen. And it did, which was great. Um, But it was was a pretty mind-blowing trip. It was to see lots of the Antonori states in Umbria and Tuscany. And um, on the way back, I sat next to Peter Lowe, who's the chairman and fine wine director at Berkman Wine Cellars. And um, then was the time to not be so quiet. Then was the time to start asking lots of questions. And, and, and yeah, I came away with a job, job offer. But the first job I got with them was not very glamorous. It was like executive assistant and sales support and sales and training and, 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 and. So it was like a bit of a dog's body kind of role. And then I left seven years later, having launched a training program called Vizon or Verizon, as they say in English. And, um, it was for wine service education. So it was kind of picked up where the WSCT was not really filling in the gaps when it comes to hospitality, but it was specifically for Berkman. So, and that was a great experience. Absolutely fantastic. I want to talk about Variation because that, that, that was something that you launched. Is that right? And I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of staff training because it is such a big world, the world of wine, and there's so many facets to it. How do you approach kind of staff training and, and what are some of the the kind of challenges of it? Oh, well, um, Verizon, yeah, Verizon was, was, was kind of my, my brainchild. It was kind of like a, it went through lots of different names before we landed on Verizon. At one time, I think the working title was Wine Walrus, just because we had no idea what to call it. Um, <laughs> I know I can't believe that didn't stick. 
<laughs> but um, you should apparently never launch a brand that begins with V or isn't in the English language if you're in the UK. And we broke both those rules. So um, it's um, how did I approach it? I basically looked at what were the needs of wine training from um, the point of view of the operator or the, the on-trade business. So the restaurant or the bar um, or even the hotel, which was I'm going to call in all my staff maybe one hour before briefing. Um, I can't afford to pay them any more than that. And that's if I pay them for that hour. And luckily now people do. Yeah. Um, and I need to train them on the wines that I have, but give them a working foundation with which to grow. So when the list changes, all of their knowledge and all of that time that we've poured into them isn't wasted. So I kind of took the basics of of fermentation and um, how to taste. Uh, we called it how to speak wine and turned it into like a series of eight one to one and a half hour training modules. We covered um, the psychology of um, not only sales, but how people buy and sort of what they're in the restaurant for. We covered body language um, for use of like first, second and third circle, which is used in improvisation. So, you know, kind of how to read body language at the table, how to use open and closed questions. It was a lot of life skills as well as like, this is a grape, these are the pips, this is the skin, this is how you smell, um, swirl, taste. Here's a bit of learning how to talk about not just fruit flavors, but ripeness and how to come away from all of those, like, I can smell apricot and peach, how to come away from that and start talking about wine like it was a person you just met. Um, you know, being kind of like bold or being quite shy or, you know, using all those different words. I love that. I think, you know, often the the challenge in a restaurant is talking about sales without, you know, kind of talking about it just being that extra couple of dollars or euros that somebody's getting at a table. It's kind of, I used to always speak to my staff about what else are you offering? And it's an experience, whether it's just a small glass of dessert wine to accompany their meals. It's a whole other experience, but it is, it's hard to approach it. And I really like that idea of um, teaching them life skills on how to read people and read what they're after. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, at the end of the day, what we were trying to do was teach them hospitality and what it means um, and almost teach them how to be more confident when they approach the table by being the authority on their what, what I used to call their gaff, right? Like it's their gaff. You've got guests coming in. You might not know everything about all the wines. You might not know everything about the guests, but you know everything about your place, right? So when you welcome someone in, read their body language, try and be the antidote to any kind of bad moods or stress or, you know, these are signs to look out for. And then start using a process of opening closed questions to start read the table, you know, find out what's the dynamic at the table. And then you can start to talk about drinks and then you can start, you know, so it was a real blend of, of, hospitality skill a bit of psychology and and yeah wine knowledge and and although it was you know you're right you know there's extra two dollars as you say or extra five dollars at the table or a glass of dessert wine instead of a tiramisu for two um that could mean a lot to each to restaurants if you've you know if you've got sort of certain numbers of tables you know you do the maths there but um what's going to matter a lot more is if you come in five dollars under budget on a wine and it still is the best wine they've ever had or it's perfect for the time and they're going to come back and they're going to tell people so you know the message even though the managers didn't like it I was like well just come in under budget make sure you don't blow it over because people are going to start to get edgy if they start to feel you pushing their their budget you know they've given you a brief that's what you that's what that's that's the job 
I totally agree with you and you said that so well. Talk to me a little bit about Red Squirrel Wine and Graft Wine Co. and your uh, your role there. Oh, wow. So I, I left Berkman, which was pretty, it's a pretty big wine um, supplier to the on-trade um, and to the multiple off-trade as well in the UK. And I went to this teeny tiny little importer that um, a good friend of mine was running. Uh, Nick Darlington set up the business. And a couple of years before that, he said, come and work for me. I really want you on the team. Um, I guess because my gravitational pull had just gone way out of whack. Mercury was in retrograde and he just went, have a job. <laughs> and I went, that sounds amazing, <laughs> but I'm not ready. I was still, Verizon hadn't been launched yet. I been writing it for 18 months I've been pushing you know I was about to to launch it to the trade and start to train you know the thousands of people that we started to train which was great so I just sort of said yes but not yet and then two years later I was like do you know what I think it's time I'm going to make the jump from the big to the small and I'm going to bring whatever skills I've got to the to a really tiny little startup and it meant that I got a lot closer to the producer you know I was starting to coordinate supplier visits I was starting to um, pull information from producer side and deliver it straight to the the operators the the restaurants and the bars that we were working with Um, and then I launched an app for them and I was halfway through collecting all this information on an amazing platform called Bottlebooks. And I still don't know why not, it's not, you know, totally ubiquitous and the world doesn't use it. But it's in a fair few countries. It's the only platform I know that handles wine data really, really well. Um, and I used that to push the information that I was collecting about all the wines through to an app that someone could download for free. And then they could download a really easy text sheet with a bottle shot and information about the producer and residual sugars and tartaric acids and all the rest of it, Um, whether or not it was vegan, you know, all of these things. Um, And halfway through me collecting all that information on about 2,000 wines, Nick turned around to me and went, got some news. We are launching, we're merging and we're launching a new company called Graft. And I was like, that's great. It went, yeah, we've got 2,000 more wines to do this with. And I just was like, oh my God. So I started pulling like some crazy hours and um, was getting a lot of like data pooling done till like three, four in the morning. And we eventually launched it and, and, and it was a real success story. I think, you know, they still use it. Um, I think I've got some winemaker interviews on there. I don't do as good a job as you do at the podcasting thing, but it was really fun. And um, I started to coordinate a lot more um, sort of producers' visits and things like that. So I got I got much, much closer to production side and it started to all make sense to me. It was great. Do you have a particular memory of a producer visit that you have uh, had that kind of sticks in your memory in terms of some of those wonderful perks and, you know, how that kind of then translates to how you express and teach people about the wines? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I do. I do. In fact, it was right before the pandemic and um, Graft, Nick and David at Graft gave me a um, kind of a grant, like a, a development grant for the year. They were like, look, you can have a budget of a thousand pounds and you can go on a trip or you can do a qualification or you can do several things. Here's a thousand pounds for the year. Um, go and do whatever you want with it. And that was right at the beginning of 2020. So, yeah. Um, so I was in the middle of coordinating um, lots of charity dinners to raise money for the Australian producers that have been affected by the fires that, that January. Um, and amidst all of that, I, I actually booked myself a trip to South Africa. So I booked myself a return plane ticket to South Africa thinking the whole year's ahead of us. It's going to go really well. I'm laughing because otherwise I'll cry. It just, it just, you know, the pandemic hit so hard. Um 
to everyone in, in multiple, multiple ways. And, and everyone's struggle was very different, you know. Um, but I, I still had this plane ticket and I ended up moving that those flights about four times and spending just as much as Graft had on the original flights. And, and then I eventually got to go out. So it was, it was one of those, it was one of those things where it was supposed to be a holiday and it ended up being just one of the best holidays where I just rented a car and drove around the Cape and up to Swatland and, um, down to Hemlinada and just really did the trip that I'd wanted to do two years previously. Um, and I drove up to, Swatland, and I went to see a producer called Albert Ahrens of Ahrens Family Wines. Um, and he's right near uh, Eben Sadi and Ardi Badenhorst and all of, all of those Swatland revolution guys. He actually started at um, the same winery on the same internship with those two. And, um, and Albert and I were talking outside his like gorgeous little boutique winery and stuff. He's got a little pizza oven and he's trying to explain to me about, you know, the lay of the land. And I was like, you know, Oh, but I did anthropology. So in my first year, we started talking about pre-hominins and, you know, this is this is the oldest topsoil or some of the oldest topsoil in the world. And he went, right, okay, that's it. Get in the truck. And we, he drove me up to Pearl Rocks and we were just standing on top of this giant granite boulder in the middle of what's like the pearl. It's like a beautiful shell when you look at it on a map. And Pearl Rocks is like the pearl in the middle. That's why it's called Pearl. And we just, it was just mind blowing. It was one of those fantastic, fantastic experiences where people think you're talking about a drink and you're not you're talking about soil <laughs> you're just talking about dirt all the time <laughs> and um and and what connects you to history and what connects you to things that you can only imagine from times gone by that you you know i mean it's that's that's really what wine's about for me dirt <laughs> <laughs> like a true sommelier <laughs> but i think that that idea of you know, a time in the world and what has happened. And I think that that's great that you said that because it, it does give you a greater appreciation for, for the world we live in and how it's changed over time and, and, and the culture and, and everything that goes into it. And you're right, might just start with understanding a little bit of, you know, topsoil and then what goes deeper. But, um, yeah, you're 100% correct. And it's funny, when you said Swartland, I was like, I bet she went and saw uh, the Sadie Wines up there when you said that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Of course they did. Eben's, a, Eben's mad. It's great when you meet all these different winemakers because when I said getting closer to producer, what I meant was you're, you're drinking something that someone's made and you're, you've not met them. You don't really know them. They're usually quite introverted or, you know, at least on, on a scale somewhere. And there's a certain kind of personality that I think draws people to wine. And I think nowadays we've got so much, so much language for what we now call kind of neurodivergent or ADHD or, you know, all of these things. What we, we used to refer to them as like spicy brained people where it's, you know, just a little spicy and <laughs> keeping things interesting. And, and lots of winemakers are, are on this scale of like, oh, I'm going to micro ferment this bit and this bit and this bit. And then does something, don't, and they're sort of like, we give them this kind of, you know, this kind of status where we go, well, they're just farmers and they are, and they're also artists and then they're businessmen and women. And then they're like, you know, they're just, it's so, so great to get to know them a little bit more. And, and Eben's one of those, one of those spicy brained individuals, I think. Walking that line between genius and slightly mad. And it's that fine line, which is like the tightrope of totally interesting and also could be disastrous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it, but totally brilliant. You know, all, the, all of these people, they're so totally brilliant at what they do. And um, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, that's, it's, 
that's it. It's the global passport to meeting some incredible people. Sure is. Now, 2020, we did talk about, uh, obviously, huge changes in the world. I want to know, what did you learn about yourself in that time of the pandemic? It obviously changed so much about the way you were living and your lifestyle, but what did you learn about yourself in that time? Oh, wow. Yeah. I had just bought my own flat and it was the first time I was going to live on my own. I'd been living with my brother after um, a long-time relationship ended and um, I finally moved into my new place, my tiny little 40 square meter flat. It was like, but it was mine and I was thinking, oh God, it's so tiny, but I'm never going to be here, so it's fine. And then it was just, I was there all the time on my own. (laughs) And my own company was not something that I'd ever run towards. It was something that I'd, I'd sort of, you know, had been going on in the background or like my home was where I'd come to rest after like working late nights or um, going out or, you know, working long days and going to the gym, you know, so hanging out on my own was something that I had to learn how to do. And how do you feel now about all of that? Are you quite happy in your own company? Yeah, um, we're we're much better friends now. We've had to be. Um, and on this trip, because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in Australia for two weeks for work and, you know, the amazing Royal Wine Show. And um, I've just come back from three days up in the Hawkesbury River area on my own, um, staying in a beautiful Airbnb and up in the trees. It's called the Little Tree House. And, you know, hiking, swimming. Yeah, it was stunning. Hiking, swimming, paddleboarding. Um it's just, yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, I think I think if there's something positive that came out of that pandemic and um, redundancy, because I was made redundant from graft, um, was that my own company is fine and I'm, you know, you're going to hustle and it's going to be okay. Well, I like that. I think that, like we said, that that's a, a life skill that we have to learn at some point. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of horrible things that happened, but there were some positives to come out of it. I did want to touch that you are the international judge for the Royal Sydney Wine Show. What was your experience like in the last week of judging? Seamless segue. That was beautifully done. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm in Australia because I was invited um, by Sarah Crowe um, and Angus Barnes to come and be international chair for the Royal Agricultural Show. Sydney Royal Wine Show, um, which was, it, it's a huge, huge honour um, because there is some amazing, amazing wine talent and I'm just this sort of international chairperson who <laughs> comes in with all my crazy ideas about faults in wine and <laughs> what makes life interesting. And there's all these people who make wine for a living and I'm going, oh, this kind of smells like this and this kind of tastes like this. And I'm not quite sure what's wrong with this wine, but it's getting a bit angry with life. And, and there's, you know, all this winemaking talent around me going, that's because this happened, this happened. They should have done a rack and return and they should have used copper. And I was like, okay. And here I am with my wine language going, it just tasted a bit pissed off. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Swearing again. (laughs) Um, So it was a real chance to absorb some incredible, incredible insights into how wine is really made and and what you're aiming for. But, you know, one thing I really have come away with is just that kind of international passport that I, I, I referred to earlier it is a global being into wine is a global passport to meeting people that you really are going to connect with you're going to like that you're going to be drawn to that just sort of you know if 
if you know, you know. If you get it, you get it. And just some amazing, amazing characters and brilliant people. And I suppose if there's any awkwardness or, you know, people are a bit shy, you can always have a glass of wine or a beer most, most likely. And all of that just kind of fades away, doesn't it? Totally, totally. I think people forget that the wine industry actually functions on beer. It's a very important drink. <laughs> it really does. Because, I mean, this was actually, this was a real gauntlet. I'm used to judging uh, international shows in London where you you might specify with a country or a particular style. Um, and you're looking at probably 60 to 80 wines across maybe from about nine o'clock in the morning to three or four. Um, but this was, this was full on. This was about 100 wines a day. I think I tasted 350 wines across the days, and that's including the trophy judging. Um, and my dentist is just going to kill me because my enamel is like, it's like my, I think my teeth are soft now. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it was, um, it's not great. It's not what you want from enamel, but... <laughs> <laughs> but what an incredible experience. And I, I genuinely think that you don't really get to know someone unless you taste wine with them. And you get a real insight into their world for that reason that we discussed. You know, the olfactory bulb is like the key to the brain. And you're just, you know, the use of language that we have or how you describe something or, you know, you're not asking about someone's politics. You're not asking about someone's family history. You're not even asking about, you know, you're not talking about current affairs, but you're you get to understand them and you get under their skin a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, and you, you really do see, don't you, when somebody is really um, inspired or, it's, like you said, recalls, you know, a, a sense from their childhood or from, from a moment they've forgotten and you kind of they get that dreamlike state when they're describing it and it's, it's really great to see because, you know, like you said, it probably wouldn't have been pulled out of them if it were, wasn't for that triggering sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's cultural exchange. You know, I'm, I'm standing there and I'm using all the references and language that I have. And most of my tasting notes, as they come up in my mind, are kind of what we call corner shop tasting notes or like things that I could have bought when I was a kid from the corner shop. So like Panda Pops or uh, Sherbet Dib Dabs or Foam Bananas or things like that. Uh, and there's another one, whenever I'm tasting like a really ripe Chardonnay, I don't smell mango or papaya or kind of, you know, yellow peach straight away. Because all of the stuff I had when I was a kid was like, if you had a peach, it was from a tin, it was in syrup. Or, you know, I, what I smell is, I call them, it's like tin sweet corn. It's green giant niblets. <laughs> so if I, <laughs> if I smell green giant niblets in a wine, I'm like, Chardonnay, easy, ripe. That's very ripe Chardonnay. Whereas <laughs> I was tasting, I was tasting about 40 different Grenache and, um, and everyone kept going, oh, yeah, yeah, it's like it's like red frogs. And I was like, what? 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 What is that? <laughs> and um, I'd never had a red frog before. <laughs> so one of my lovely fellow judges bought me a pack of red frogs. So I had my first red frog. And I think my last, Shante, it was, it was not good. <laughs> <laughs> I think they smell better than they taste. but uh I mean, the smell is quite interesting. <laughs> I think a, a lot of the time when I travel to another country, I often seek out like the local snacks and chips and I'm not a big sweet tooth, but I, you know, if they're really, you know, something that I've got to have, I always kind of gravitate and just want to kind of try them. And for that exact reason as well, because you might come across something like 
that you've never tried before and you're like, my goodness, that's exactly what I get in Carmen yet that <laughs> I haven't been able to put my finger on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, well, there's like a Grenache that's been made that's really glossy and kind of textbook and um, probably a little bit, you know, and again, people who actually make wine for a living will be able to pinpoint why, but I would have called it sort of a cold, colder temperature fermentation, um, a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit whole bunchy where it just sort of starts to get what we call like bonbon or like strawberry laces or whatever um and i think if you really want to get under the skin of a culture look at its look at its convenience food look at what's in the corner shop and then you'll really start to understand people Definitely. And it's fascinating talking to sommeliers because of that exact fact of you speak to someone from Singapore and you're just like, oh, I need to start trying these things that you're talking about because they sound fantastic or awful, you know. <laughs> but Yeah, but it's going to be an experience and it won't cost me much. And I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> very true, very true. I think I'm still picking bits of red frog out of my teeth. It sticks, man. It really sticks. They do. They do. I mean, don't try a minty because you'll be in severe trouble and those poor soft teeth of yours will just be pulled out. So that's my warning to you right now. <laughs> I want to know what's since your trip, What what is exciting you about Australian wine right now that perhaps you didn't maybe know beforehand before you came over? Oh, I had no idea about the breadth or diversity of varieties that are really readily available. So I knew that there were lots of smaller producers or kind of maybe producers that had a bit of disposable income to start experiment with Italian varieties. But, you know, I knew there was like little pockets of Negro Amaro and Nebbiolo and Sangiovese, but I didn't know it was actually quite as widespread as it is. Um, And that's really, really exciting. That's really exciting because I do think... I think those varieties are going to do really exciting things. I mean, the Sangioveses, we tried a couple of them. And, um, you know, there's things like uh, multiple Chano, Nero Davila blends. You know, I think there's some really, really exciting stuff happening with the varieties that are playing around with. Not to mention, like, you know, a little bit more, which is kind of global fashion, coming away from heavy-handed winemaking. You know, this big over-extraction, this heavy-handed oak use, um, you know, really trying to over-ripen and get all the fruit out of it, big alcohol. You know, and I, I, you know, maybe internally and sort of in an anthropological fashion because I can't, you know, I can't help it. Um, I wonder whether that is a knock on impact of um, maybe gender politics and where we are now with talking about masculinity and femininity. Yeah, I mean, and also I think perhaps the 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 naysayers of the the wine world calling the shots as well of what is required have changed quite dramatically as well, I think, in terms of gender. And maybe that's why we're kind of listening more to the quieter wines and maybe the not so stand up and, you know, reveal it all in upfront kind of styles. Yeah. 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 I mean, to use kind of gendered language in wine tasting notes these days is kind of de rigueur. It's kind of, it's a bit old fashioned and a bit passe. And yes, we all know what you're talking about, but it's not really relevant. And I remember doing a talk with a really, really close friend of mine, Sula Richardson, who now works for Naked Wines in the UK. And we did a talk at um, a wine symposium for Poor, which is a cocktail show in Paris. Um, The ever talented and incredible Monica Berg and Alex Kratina put on a wine symposium and Sula and I did a talk about is wine gendered and we were talking about we flashed up some sort of tasting notes um that were pretty <laughs> I mean I don't know can I share them they were all I mean they're, they're quite rude they were things like 
Okay, good. Good, good, good. There were things like, there was one talking about the, talking about a Chardonnay, uh, a Burgundy Chardonnay. And it was just like, this wine is so pretty and feminine on the nose and it resists on the entry and then gives way and blushes. And it was all just like, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, it was like, am I, is this porn? What's, what the, what the hell is this got to do with wine? Oh my God. <laughs> um, and it wasn't, it didn't mention a single like fruit or anything, which I appreciated, but also it was just so overly sexualized. And we asked the crowd, we flashed up a few other tasting notes. We asked the crowd what year they thought they were from. And they were all from that year's on premier tasting. And they were all, yeah, terrifying. They were all like modern day. And then we said, you know what, when people outside of the wine industry, outside of the drinks industry are doing market research. Young people aren't even talking about gender. Gender doesn't exist. It doesn't. And now, you know, this was a good few years ago. Now everyone's like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, it does exist, but it also doesn't. And it was just so revolutionary to people to stop thinking about those things and those, you know, in that way and, and to kind of over-sexualize something that, you know, yeah, wine's pretty sexy. I find it sexy. But then again, I start thinking, you know, the oldest top solo in the world is pretty exciting. So, like everyone, everyone for themselves. Yeah, and I, there's such a different way of descriptors in terms of brawn or muscular or slinky. They're descriptors that are, are not so attached to specific genders, and like you said, the sexualization of those. So I think there's still the ability to be able to kind of um, conceptualize what we're trying to understand, but that just doesn't have to be in that ugly way that we have in the past. It's so good that we have evolved, isn't it? I mean, I, don't, I hope it's evolution, but it is it is progression in some way. But it, it's also coming away from the idea that you are what you drink and it's linked to your gender. Um, I love the idea that you can put on a different personality with what you drink. And I, I did, I did a few uh, just kind of for fun. I paired up with um, a perfume specialist whose stage name was fantastic. It was Odette Toilette. She was um, perfume historian. It was so good. And we were pairing wines with um, famous perfumes throughout history. And we paired things like she had Kouros. I don't know if that's a, a fragrance you know. It was like a really masculine cologne of like you know the the city slickers in the 80s and you smell it and it was just just to the t it was just personality in a bottle and i was like this has got to go with a magnum of sancerre quite old and like again you know sauvignon being so like aromatic and like bolshe and it's a big bottle and it's an old event it was so interesting to do but we're coming away from that idea of like you are what you drink and and men have to drink men's drinks and women have to drink women's drinks there's a, a comedian in the uk who um he refers to wine as um fruit-based drinks for the ladies <laughs> I mean, the character he puts on is supposed to be cringeworthy, and he is. Because why can't you enjoy any kind of style of wine, no matter your gender, no matter your sex, or, or, or no matter your politics? I think, you know, it's kind of come to light with that, like, brosé culture. of like, you can be a man's man, but you can enjoy pink drinks. <laughs> like, I think it's, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I think that we, yeah, but that's got to get in the bin and we've got it. We've got to continue to move on and, and uh, yeah, stop kind of pigeonholing that, which, like I said, I think we have made really good progression. But you were somebody that has once said that you like to be able to describe wine as if you were meeting them for the first time. So I'm curious if you were meeting Clara Rubin for the first time, how would you describe yourself as a wine? 
That is such a cruel question. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Depends which god, which day of the week. Where is you know who's <laughs> what planets are aligning? <laughs> no, I mean, um, oh god! I mean, we used to non non wine friends would ask a question like, if you were a grape variety, what grape variety would you be? And and I was like, God, I hope I'm Shannon. I really do. I hope I'm Shannon Blanc. Yeah, I think I think I'm Shannon, but I can be quite high acidity, quite acerbic, um, but I can also be <laughs> quite oxidative, <laughs> quite hardworking. I'll make sweet styles and oat styles and unoat styles, and even sparkling wine. But I can't make red wine. There are some things even I won't do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that because it is the grape that can do a little bit of everything, like you said, within its within its realms. And uh, I'm such a huge fan of Shannon, so I think that that's an excellent, excellent call. I won't ask you to to do any more because it, you're right; it is totally cruel. And if someone asked me that, I would just slap them. I now, really <laughs> want to ask you, but you're you're driving this. So I can't, <laughs> and I haven't got near a good a comeback. So tell me a little bit about being head of wine for Hawksmoor restaurants, steak and seafood establishments across London, Manchester, Edinburgh, Liverpool, Dublin, and New York. What's the best part of your role there? Yeah, um, I've been doing that for 18 months now. Um, best part of my role, oh gosh, the wine managers I get to work with. It sounds really, really cheesy, but after 18 months of um, freelancing and, and kind of hustling after being made redundant, I was really, really looking to get my teeth into a role that was rewarding and was you know, I was working with a team of people towards something and I genuinely think this company is it. And people really, my brother works in hospitality. He's, he's owned um, a small pub group for, for years and years and years. And and he was like, so what's it like? What's Hawksmoor like? Um, as in like, you know, spill the tea, dish the goss. Can't, can't be all that perfect. It's got such a great reputation for like people investment. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's really that good. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop. I really am. It's like, it's, it's genuinely a people first company and it's, it's trying, to, it, what it does is steak and chips, right? It keeps calling it meat and potatoes. Like internally, we're just like, we sell meat and potatoes, man. It's just, it's really simple, but, but, <laughs> but it's really delicious um, because it's a, it's a company that really understands that it's hospitality first. And the way I can describe it is, is if, is if you get everything on the table right, like including the table, everything looking good. Um, it's got a sort of beautiful, casual, but quite, you know, aspirational nature to it. It's the best steak you can put on the table or it's the best chips that you can put on the table. Say all of that is perfect. If the person standing next to the table who's hosting you doesn't want to be there and you can feel it, none of what's on the table matters. So it's, it's, and that is something that I hold so close to my heart. And I think I'm really lucky that I get to work for a company that understands that. So that's really great. So I sound like a join a cult, right? Like I just. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely drunk the Kool-Aid, but if it's good, it's good. And, you know, working with people, like you said, we've come out of a few years of, of having a lot of time with either ourselves or your, you know, bless your Bless your partner, who I'm sure is wonderful. But uh, you, yeah, you see them a lot, and you think, God, I just need to see someone else. And being able to vibe off the people in a company, share energy, um, be inspired by them is just the whole reason I think we get into hospitality is because people, people, people. And um, it's fantastic that you're in a place that, like you said, that just gets it and that um, encourages that kind of, um, yeah, exchange of of 
ideas and it sounds awesome and I, I'm thrilled for you. I've, I could talk to you for hours, but I am going to ask you my final question, which is if you could only drink three drinks for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? And you can just tell me today, like if it's just today, you, have, you can change your mind tomorrow. Okay, obviously wine. And I really hate it when people say like, what's your favorite wine? And I'm like, what's your favorite song? (laughs) You know, you might have a favorite song of the moment, but it's, I think the beauty and joy of wine is that you don't have to have a favorite. There is so much out there. And I chose this profession because I will never be bored. Um, So I'm just going to say wine as one. Um, Number two, um, Earl Grey with oat milk. Uh, I, I live off of that. Absolutely. Isn't that illegal to have Earl Grey and milk together? Well, cow milk, sure, because that just tastes like cheese. Oh. But, um, yeah, no one wants cheese in their tea. But Earl Grey with oat milk, I live off of it. So, I'm, you know, any other Brits out there that want to fight me on it, cool, let's go. Three rounds, I'll do it. Um, I've seen you hit a golf club with ferocious intensity, so I would say do not fight her. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. I'll, I'll take that too. I'm going to put that on my CV as well. Shante Whale. <laughs> um, uh, number three, um, I'm one of those annoying people that makes juices in the morning, um, wakes all my neighbours up at like 7am with the blender going. Um, so like I've got a freezer full of like um, prepped fruit that I bought because it was going off at the grocery store and just, you know, throw it together. I make a, I make a green one. I make a yellow one. I make a purple one. I'm one of those people. So yeah, drinks, those, those are my drinks. Fresh juice. (laughs) Do you have like a specific concoction that's like just the perfect balance of different fruit and veggies? Do you have one that you just love? Yeah, 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 yeah. My orange one, like a sunshine juice, grapefruit, orange, a little bit of like a teaspoon of, um, citric acid or malic acid if you can find it you don't need to use as much if you use malic acid it's really good for your kidneys um turmeric uh bee pollen and ice oh and carrot gotta have some carrot in there mm. oh i was gonna say nice earthy element you're a citrus junkie i love it just like me yeah man acidity <laughs> oh yeah till i die well, I like that that's going to counteract. You've got two very healthy elements and then you've got your wine to counteract everything else. So very good choices. Clara, it's been a smaller minute getting to know you. Thank you so much for your time while you're here. I really appreciate it because you could be sitting out on a deck somewhere, you know, reading a book. Um, and instead we're talking uh, smack around wine. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I hope you stay in touch. My pleasure. Thank you, Shante. That was great. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.